rise my soul will rest in your embrace for I am yours and you are mine and I will call upon your name and keep my eyes chosen to worship with us this morning. I'm Don Witten. On behalf of the elders of Preston Crest, we want to welcome you. Thank you for taking the time and the effort to get up and worship this morning. If you're visiting with us, we are particularly glad you're here. Whether you are just passing through or you're looking for a church home, we hope that you will give us a chance to get to know you. We're glad you've chosen to be with us as well. 
Do us a favor, if you will, take one of the cards in front of, the, of you on the pew, uh, back pew, and fill it out. Turn it into the Welcome Center in the back, and if this is your first visit, they've got a special gift for you there as well. Members alike, if you wouldn't mind checking in by texting the word check-in to the number on the screen, 469-476-5331. We would appreciate that as well. This morning, as we enter into worship, I want to reflect on these words from Psalms 17, 6 through 7. I call on you, my God, for you will answer me. Turn your ear to me and hear my prayer. Show me the wonders of your great love. You who save by your right hand, those who take refuge in you from their foes. Let's go to the Father in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as the psalmist writes, we call on you because you answer us. We take great comfort in knowing that our prayers are heard by you, the creator of all, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, but also heard by you, our kind and loving and caring Heavenly Father. We lift up this prayer of praise and thanksgiving for the amazing assurance of salvation that you do give us. Not one that was casually granted, but one that was bought and paid for with the blood and suffering of your one and only son. What a completely unmerited and incomparable gift that it was. Thank you, Father, for each and every soul here this morning. And Father, for those who come here feeling broken, I pray for restoration. For those who come here feeling weak, bring strength. For those who come here with sadness, bring joy. And for those who come here with doubts, I pray, that, Father, that you will bring faith. For those who come feeling shame, we pray that you will bring freedom. And for those who come here feeling burdened, bring rest. And God, we pray that those come that are anxious on anything, that you will bring peace. For you alone can. Father, it's our privilege and joy to praise you. And as we sing, let us make a truly joyful noise to you. And as we pray, that may the words and thoughts be pleasing to you. As we open your word, may we trust in your unfailing promises, and as we commune, may we be mindful of the grace-filled sacrifice given to us by you and your Son. Father, transform us and make us more and more like you. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Don. Let's sing together, church. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus
Y'all came to worship now. <laughs> All right. I love this. As we enter into our communion time, we're going to sing a great, great old hymn. I love this song. And then Robert Savage will come and lead us around the bread and around the cup this morning. Let's, uh, let's sing. Welcome. I'm first going to start by saying this is the 282nd day of the year. And what makes that important is this is your 281st day of reading. If you're stuck in Second Chronicles, you need to step it up. Because we've actually entered the New Testament as of about October the 3rd. So uh, if you're in the New Testament, you're not too far behind. But if you're back in... Second Chronicles, which was the last part we read for the Old Testament. Come on, let's go. So, uh, John Scott asked me to do this. I have spent quite a bit of the week in uh, looking at these primarily three accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there are parts of each of these that strike you a little bit uh, 
more touching than the others. I'm going to start with Luke. Luke 22, on the first verse, Now the festival of the unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. Then came the day of the unleavened bread, this is in verse 7, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John. The emphasis there is this is the only account where he named who he sent to go prepare for the Passover. As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make the preparations there. And so at this point, I'm going to also read from Luke. And he took the bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you in the only place that he says, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Our heavenly father, we are thankful for Jesus sacrifice and his body that uh, he so willingly gave up. And now as we uh, pause, as we do weekly, to do this in remembrance of him. In his name we pray, amen. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful again for uh, Jesus' blood, a sacrifice. Uh, we know, as the scripture says, that he did this for all of us. 
and we're thankful for the uh, disciples that were with him to the end. And we're thankful for God allowing this to happen for our benefit. In his name we pray, amen. why I'm still up here is when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, the base of Gethsemane's at the base of the Mount of Olives, and I'd like to read that to you. On the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread, I get to the right place here. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And this next sentence is the one that really captivated me because I didn't see it anywhere else. And an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed and more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked. Get up and pray so you will not fall into temptation. Christ, we do all.
Amen. That's why we're here. Thank you for coming here this morning, joining your voice with ours as we adore Jesus and thank him for all that he's done. Debbie, good to see you back. Debbie Rusas, we have missionaries in Greece who've been there a little while. Uh, Dino and Debbie, Debbie's back. And I understand, given a Facebook post from your husband last week, you had a birthday. So happy 34th. Um, yeah, and you've got some of yours with you today, so awesome. Uh, we do celebrate uh, this time each, uh, each Lord's Day um, some of the good works that we get behind, that we partner with. The Russo's family is one of those. Um, some of them are more visible, some of them less visible. Uh, one that you have probably noticed has been somewhat visible to you uh, in the past few years has been the increased security presence here. And I'm grateful to our elders for recognizing that need and uh, addressing it. So this morning, maybe as you walk about the campus, you'll thank one of the men or women who are serving to protect us this morning. It reminds me of Nehemiah, that story we studied a few years back, um, how just given a strategic moment in time, Nehemiah appointed some, some guards. And uh, we've done that as well because there's nothing more precious on this campus than, than these souls, these people, the children that gather here. So we're grateful for those who serve and, and for you who give to support this ministry. If you want to give this morning, you can drop a check out in the box in the foyer or you can give online. Also, SGSO, we continue to do hurricane relief through that. You can give to that as well. Let's pray. God, we are grateful. We are grateful to you for the great sacrifice of Jesus and that reminder we just shared together of his agony, of what he went through for each one of us. We are grateful for that angel that ministered to him, and we're grateful for your angels who continue to minister to your people today. God, I am grateful today for the men and women who keep us safe, who protect us, who serve plain clothes, uniformed, Dallas police, security officers. We just lift them up. We ask you to bless them with good health, to protect them, and to encourage them as they serve in this meaningful way here at Preston Crest. We pray this in the name of our great protector and defender, Jesus. Amen. Hey church, our shepherds really love this flock and really want to keep us safe. That's why part of what you give each Sunday morning goes to help ensure a safe place for us to gather. And that's why we have a visible and plain clothes security detail posted inside and outside on Sundays, along with the Dallas police presence visible. We also have security here on days when we have large group gatherings such as Sunshine School, Women of Worship, and all of our large indoor and outdoor fellowship events. It's good to be able to gather safely, and what you give each Sunday helps ensure that. Thanks, Preston Crest. Okay, Pumpkin Fest needs your help. Please get connected with that. We still have slots to fill for all kinds of service opportunities and working together. If you're not able to be there to help us on that day, please donate some candy and you'll see drop boxes placed throughout our campus that you can just, just pick up a big old bag of candy at Walmart and just uh, bring it up here next time you're here. Drop it in the bucket. That will help us as well. Golf tournament coming up Sunday, October 16th. That's next Sunday is the deadline. 
If we don't fill up the course, they're going to open it up to the public while we're on there as well. And that's not as fun as if we just come out and own the course. So please go ahead and register. Please register by that deadline so we can make sure that we have the whole day to ourselves out there. That's a better, a better option. Uh, the Christian Works op Auction still needs uh, help. Uh, we got an email yesterday from Bobby Keese. They need some, some volunteers. Please, uh, please connect with this as well. Uh, the email that you got yesterday uh, in that link has a, 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 connect, a way to connect to Bobby to let her know that you're willing to work that evening. That is this coming Sunday night at the Christian Works Auction out at the Arboretum this year. It's going to be gorgeous. So yeah, please help us out with that as well. All right, let's stand. We're going to send kids on up to Children's Church. And we're going to sing one more as uh, Gordon's getting ready to come back up here and share with us. Ever blessing you for guys came to worship today. Yeah. Just thinking there, standing just, uh, just now thinking about uh, our Bible classes and how important they are to me and Isla and so many of us here. Uh, encourage you, if you do not have a Bible class that you are plugged into, find one. Uh, there's a brochure at the Information Center. You can ask somebody out there, come and ask me, and we'll help put you in a place that you might fit, but you can just explore as well. Uh, a lot of options here, um, very important part 
of the work here at Preston Crest. We've said before, we'll uh, probably keep saying this, it's just interesting. At Preston Crest, <laughs> over 80% of you who attend on Sunday morning find your way into a Bible class each week, and that is pretty remarkable. Uh, other, other churches might have a Sunday school Bible class program where maybe half the people uh, go, but it's a big deal here, and there's a reason for that. Uh, it's community and uh, mission and life together, and so I hope you'll find a way to be part of one of those Bible classes. Matthew chapter 7. These are the words of Jesus. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Judge not lest you be judged. This has to be one of the most known and quoted verses in the New Testament, not only by believers, but unbelievers as well. It is a favorite. People know it and quote it all the time, kind of weaponize it sometimes. I was in a place this week where I just happened to be crossing by a television that had one of the morning shows on, and a celebrity panelist uh, quoted the Bible saying, thou shalt not judge. Of course, that's not in the Bible, but I think she had this in mind. Uh, we're not supposed to be in the business of going around judging everybody, but we make judgments all the time. We can't not make judgments all the time. It is part of life, and it is a very helpful part of life. Uh, I had to make, as Barbara knows, a judgment this week, and it had to do with the word judgment. How do you spell it? Is it judge, J-U-D-G-E, meant on the end? Or do you drop the E and put the two together? Turns out both are right. And I'm seriously looking at my PowerPoint this week, uh, these slides, I'm going, I don't know. One of them looks more right, but I'm not sure. And so I found a Wall Street, no, it was a Washington Post article on this very question. And he says, in American English, judgment vastly predominates, so without the E in the middle. Judgment with the E is listed in dictionaries, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but judgment without the E has been more than 10 times more common in recent years. I don't know. And I feel you. Some of you are judging me right now for the decision that I am going to make <laughs> to drop the E out. But I was 50-50. I was I was 50-50. So we're going to dig into what Jesus was saying in Matthew chapter 7. Seems as relevant as it was a couple thousand years ago, as important as it ever was. Judge not that you will not be judged. I like what D.A. Carson, uh, a noted uh, Bible scholar, had to say about this. I think he's right on. He said, in an age when Matthew 7-1... 
do not judge or you too will be judged, has displaced John 3.16 as the only verse in the Bible the man on the street is likely to know, it is perhaps worth adding that Matthew 7.1 forbids judgmentalism, not moral discernment. Okay, not your ability to see right and wrong. We're not getting rid of that. We're getting rid of judgmentalism. That's what this text is all about. Uh, I think Carson is right on that. Uh, Now, I think all of us know how flawed, systematically flawed, our judgments can be. Um, There are lots of people that have prejudices, I would say, Everyone has prejudices. The problem is you don't know what your prejudices are oftentimes. And these are sort of mental shortcuts. This is sort of lazy, sloppy kind of thinking that automatically categorizes someone or some group of people into some sort of generally not so good category. And it is consistently just off when we judge people based on some obvious external feature like skin color or the accent that they have or where they are from or who they voted for or where they went to college. Um, These kinds of summary judgments that we pass often without even being aware we are passing them, they are just wildly warped, okay? Um, Look, I'll just talk about myself for a second. I've enjoyed a lot of advantages in life. I, have, I was born into a stable family. My mom and dad loved each other. Uh, when I was born 53 years ago, they still love each other today. Uh, we were financially stable. Uh, I didn't lack anything, and I got a family that valued Christ and made sure that I grew up in a home where I learned Scripture and went to church with them. Um, I never had uh, in my life, I really never had to walk into a situation where my skin color uh, created judgment for me when I walked into any situation or put me at an automatic disadvantage. And then we moved to Brazil, um, and I love Brazil so much, but I did get a feeling there of what it felt like to get prejudged. Uh, because there, even, I mean, especially early on when our Portuguese was sketchy, uh, was not so good, we noticed that we regularly got charged more for stuff. <laughs> They would see us, they would hear us, and we would get the American surcharge thrown in. Does that sound fair? No. Did that feel good? No. Um, It wasn't something we could change about ourselves, although we did work on those accents and on that Portuguese and got better. But there was some feature about us that we could not change that was costing us, that was creating a disadvantage for us. Uh, When it was time to find an apartment, I mean, we had just gotten there. We were living in this hotel. We had an 18-month-old child, and so we were looking for an apartment, and we found the perfect apartment. I remember it was the, we called it the yellow apartment because the paint was yellow, but beautiful dark wood and yellow and great size for us, and we had the resources, so we signed all these papers and did all this stuff, and in the end, we're told, yeah, you're not going to get that one. I was like, why? Uh, The owner doesn't like Americans. That was it. (laughs) So we were out on that one, and we ended up basically, uh, Jennifer, living in a shoebox for for a couple of years until we bought a house. So, I mean, it was was rough. Um, I know that some of you have been victims of judgments or prejudices, especially our black brothers and sisters that make my experiences, you know, look bush league. I mean, rookie type stuff. Uh, I read a while back a true story 
And this just helps us think a true story about how flawed our judgments and assumptions can be and how we can be blind to them. And it has to do with the selection of um, symphony orchestra musicians. Okay? Until recently, those auditions were not blind auditions. You would have a panel of judges, experts, you know, expert cellists and experts musicians, and then the person auditioning would come up in front of them and would play a piece, and they would be judged, you know, are you good enough, are you not good enough? There was a problem that was, that was happening from that. Women were not being selected for the brass sections, okay? They just didn't think they had the, you know, the the lungs, the, the power to, to handle those big brass instruments. And so you got this situation where women were, I mean, there were none in the Met Symphony Orchestra, for example, and there was a tryout at one point for principal French horn, okay? First chair, French horn. They had just instituted blind auditions, these screens that separated the musician from the jury. And Julie Landsman went behind the screen and she played this complicated piece to perfection. And at the end of the piece, she held this note, a high C, which is a very difficult note, I'm told, to hold. She held it for such a long time that the jury began to laugh. She wanted to leave no doubt that she was the best candidate for that first chair. Of course, they gave her that. They couldn't deny her that. When she stepped out behind the screens, the, the jury was shocked. They couldn't believe it until they listened to her play without prejudging her, until they heard with just their ears, they had no idea how good she was. Jesus lets us know. Oh, by the way, another thing that caused them a little surprise when she walked out behind the screens they knew Julie. She had been playing as a substitute with them for several years. From substitute to first chair. Well, Jesus wants us to know that our judgments about people and situations are very often flawed. Like, like plank coming out of your eye, can't see straight, kind of flawed, can't evaluate accurately. But we need to make judgments. Life requires us to make judgments. We just need to start out with a little humility and be open and honest and aware that our judgments aren't all that accurate. Um, I was thinking this week, I wonder how many of you right here in this room, about a month ago, when Dak Prescott went out how many of you judged the Cowboys were about to start a winning streak? Okay. For those of you raising your hands, go back a few weeks and listen to the sermon on truth-telling. Okay. Yeah. So we make judgments. They're not often great judgments. Uh, but Jesus in Matthew 7, he uses the word Hippocrates. Uh, he's talking specific, very specifically about hypocritical judgments. Uh, applying a, a loose and forgiving standard to myself 
and a very stringent and critical standard to the people around me. That is hypocritical judging. Now, Jesus was an expert on judgmentalism because he experienced it all the time directed at him. I mean, he was judged to be a glutton, a false prophet, to be doing miracles by the power of Beelzebub, to be a false prophet, to be a heretic guilty of blasphemy. He was judged by about anything you could judge a first century rabbi uh, by. And this, especially by this legalistic group called the Pharisees, he was, he was judged to be a sinner because he was always with sinners. And so they wrote, he can't be, he can't be from God. He's always hanging out with sinners. Um, so Jesus, yeah, he would heal the sick on the Sabbath day. They judged him to be a lawbreaker. Um, just easy, lazy, snap judgments that his opponents made. And he looked them square in the eye at one point in John chapter 7. And he said, John chapter 7 verse 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, great. What is right judgment? We'll get to that in a moment. But Jesus, he does not say that we are never to judge. That's a part of life. He does say we need to judge correctly. We need to judge with right judgment. So we're going to unpack that in a bit. But every one of us has been, has been hurt, has been injured by some sort of unfair criticism by some sort of unfair judgment. It's not fun. It's not right. Um, so if we are called to judge at times, but we are to reject judgmentalism, how do we walk that line? Well, Sermon on the Mount always goes back to the heart. The heart makes the difference between judging correctly and judgmentalism. It fits right in with what Jesus has been showing us. It is of primary concern, my heart, to the Father. Evaluating or assessing behaviors of people is useful. It's a necessary part of life. Moms and dads, you do that all the time with your little ones. You have to evaluate and correct behavior. I've taught college classes before at Oklahoma Christian and at the University of Oklahoma. And when you teach a class, there is evaluating, assessing involved in that. You're grading papers. You're taking attendance. You're giving out end-of-term grades. That is not the kind of, of discernment and evaluation that Jesus is condemning. James Bryan Smith, who wrote a book about the Sermon on the Mount, he says that what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7 is making a negative, this is good, making a negative evaluation of another person without standing in solidarity with them. Okay? Finding fault without standing in solidarity with that person. This is a kind of judging where we criticize someone without caring about someone. We judge, mic drop, we walk away. Um, no one wants to be judged in this way, but we, if we are wise, we don't mind getting helpful feedback. Uh, we don't mind getting useful evaluations from trusted allies. 
from brothers and sisters in Christ, that kind of correction that we receive from people that we care about, it helps us grow. It helps us become more like Jesus. It helps us be better people, better spouses, better parents, better employees, better bosses, better disciples of Jesus. So the evaluation of an ally, the judgment of an ally gives us life. It is a life-enhancing tool. Uh, Both the receiving of it and the giving of it is core to discipleship, to becoming better. Smith says there are four big flaws in the kind of judging that we often do. The first one is it doesn't flow from a heart of love. Judgment that doesn't flow from a heart of love is not worth much. Like attacking somebody with a verbal barrage, berating someone. This is why nobody likes feeling judged. Nobody does. When they sense someone has not taken the time to know them, to put themselves in their shoes, um, that someone doesn't value them, and someone doesn't care about them, then the judgments of that other person are not welcome. No thank you. Second, Our judgments tend to be flawed because even if they are factually correct, they kind of sidestep a necessary step on this. So first, the first step, of course, for someone to change is you've got to recognize you need to change. Uh, Admit that you have messed up, uh, that you need to make a course correction. Feeling judged, what does it do? It tends to push someone into a corner with their back against the wall, defensive position. When you feel attacked, what are you likely to do? You're likely to attack back. You're like, likely to start throwing some haymakers back the other way. So what's missing? This is the part that, that we sidestep. What's missing is that someone isn't gently brought to a place of recognition. No. They are forced to recognize their errors. And the process of transformation is not served by that. And third, Smith says that judgment is deconstruction without reconstruction. It is tearing down a house without making an effort to rebuild the house. Condemning a person or a group is lazily passing judgment without helping that person know what they need to do or how they need to change. Uh, It's it's launching this attack without fostering a desire from that other party to actually change. And finally, the fourth thing here, our judgments may be and often are just wrong. Um, So Isla and I, I I think I told this story a couple of years ago, but I'll tell it again. We observed for months out of the window of our house. Uh, Lots of people come by and they're walking their dogs and, you know, they stop and their dogs do their business. And, you know, best practice, you pull your little bag out and you pick it up and you move on, right? We observed this elderly lady with her little dachshund and she was coming by and, I mean, our side yard was the official bathroom of this dachshund, okay? Um, Every time they would stop, dachshund does the business, they walk on, she, scandalous, she did not pick up the, you know, from the dog. And we were getting kind of 
upset about this, maybe a little angry about this, and we just kept talking like, we got to get out, we got to watch, we got to get out there, and we got to give her a piece of our mind, okay? We got to stop this. She needs to pick up that doggy poo. When we ran into another neighbor as we were walking our dog one time who said, isn't that woman, you know, the elderly lady with kind of the orange hair and the dachshund, isn't she incredible? And we're like, uh, yeah, I guess so. They said that she is blind and takes that dog for a walk every day. And we're like, wait, she's blind? Thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us that bit of information before we went out and tore into an elderly disabled lady. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, we went from seeing her as this terrible neighbor, you know, to this overcomer, you know, with a disability. It's amazing what a little accurate information can do. Um, So why do we judge so freely and easily? Why is judgmentalism a problem that needed to be addressed 2,000 years ago and today? Because we like it. Because it feels good. It elevates me. It it, it elevates my group. And it pushes you or your group down. It diminishes and makes me feel superior. Um, So Jesus gives us this really helpful bit of advice there in verse 2. With the measure that we use, it will be used back to us. Okay? It's helpful because it helps us kind of put the brakes on the free and easy judgmentalism that we often operate with, the Lord wants us to think about, hey, don't go around judging unless you are willing to be submitted to the same level of scrutiny that you are applying to that other person. All right? When I judge someone, that person, surprise, is more likely to judge me back. When I condemn, I'm more likely to get condemned from that other person. And not only will I be judged more strictly by others, I'll be judged by God with that measure that I use as well. So my guess is Jesus had the audience in stitches. I think he had them laughing when he started talking about the fellow with the two by four, with the plank coming out of his eye, who is trying to perform this precision procedure of removing a speck of sawdust from someone else's eye. They had to be laughing. There's there's this uh, incredible, almost comical lack of self-awareness, when someone is blissfully unaware of their own failures and moral weakness, and yet, they are freely judging everybody around them. I mean, just popping. I remember years ago, I gave a talk somewhere, uh, a lesson, and one of the versions, uh, translations I used, it wasn't the ESV or the NIV, it was one of the ones that we don't use very often. And after my talk, This woman came up to me, and she was angry. She was red in the face, and she was upset that I used that particular translation of the Bible. Didn't I know that wasn't accurate? Didn't I know that this and that and the other thing? I was like, well, I think it is accurate. That's why I used it. Uh, Turns out, I found out later, she had been cheating. This woman who came up to me had been cheating on her husband for some time. 
with multiple guys, uh, ended up, in short order, leaving her husband to go off with these, one of these other guys. And I say that, I know that's, whew. there was a plank coming out of her eye, and she was speck inspecting on me. Again, hypocrisy. Applying one standard to someone else and a very different standard to yourself. This is what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 7. Those who pass judgment while pretending that they have got it all together. Those people sicken Jesus. He calls people to self-evaluate so that they can, very important, self-evaluate so that they, so that we can be aware of our own blind spots before we go around correcting everybody else. Is there a plank in my eye while I'm trying to pick a sawdust speck out of someone else's? Uh, Would I be comfortable having the measure that I'm using used back to evaluate me? R.T. France puts it this way. The use of our critical faculties in making value judgments is frequently required in the New Testament. This passage, however, is concerned with the fault-finding, condemnatory attitude, which is too often combined with a blindness to one's own failings. Judgmentalism is wrong. Prejudice is wrong. Being a part of a, of a healthy community where we know each other, where we care about each other, uh, this is a safe place where we can receive assessments and evaluations, where we can look to bring out the best in each other. Now, the last thing Jesus said on judgment in that passage is this odd saying I bet it caught your attention when Jesus said, Do not throw your pearls before the pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Um, The most common way of, of reading that, of understanding that, is don't give your best advice to someone who won't appreciate it. Uh, James Bryan Smith simply asks a different question. He says, When Jesus says, Don't give pearls, to pigs, is he really saying that the pig is unworthy, or is he saying, quite simply, pigs can't digest pearls? Both ways make a little bit of sense, I think. As far as that second one goes, think about it. If a farmer is feeding the pigs pearls instead of corn or something, uh, they're not going to get sustenance They're going to grow weak. They're going to get angry. uh, And they're not going to be able to digest this quote-unquote food, these pearls. Um, Wouldn't meet any need that they have. Even if they ate the pearls, well, they would just, right, pass on through. Um, So here's the thing. When there is no heart of love behind judgment, that judgment won't be digested. It won't be well-received. Uh, There's not going to be a need that's met. So nobody likes being on the receiving end of judgment and condemnation. Uh, We don't respond well to it. We are not nourished by it. We don't digest it and grow from it. And I think really the, the true concluding word 
of this. And it's kind of a concluded word that ties into several of the things Jesus has been saying in this portion of Scripture, really is in verse 12, uh, when Jesus says, and you've heard this before, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Would you read that with me? Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Do you like being judged? Well, that should guide our approach as we seek to assess and encourage and help each other grow. At Calvary, Jesus demonstrated his heart for us, demonstrated his love when he offered his life so that our sins could be forgiven. We could have a fresh start and we could grow to be the people God wants us to be. And we as his disciples, we listen to his words, um, even when they hit us right here, when they diagnose sinful attitudes and patterns of life that we need to repent of. Uh, because we know that when Jesus tells the truth to us, it comes from a place of great love. Spirit of God, help us to be self-aware Help us to rightly see ourselves and only then from a place of grateful humility, only then give us words to help those around us make the changes that they need to make. This morning, if you want to give your life to Christ, if you want to be baptized into Jesus, what a perfect day to do that. We would love to help you with that. Maybe you need the prayers of this church family. Uh, you can turn those in, drop them in a box out there, hand them to one of the elders or the ministers, uh, put them up on church teams. Those will be prayed over tomorrow night by our elders. Uh, maybe you need this morning just to get together with somebody here. Come down and pray with me or Don or pray with somebody around you. We would encourage you to do that. Uh, maybe you want to talk to us about being a member of the Preston Crest Church family. We would love to talk to you about that. However you need to respond, let's do that as we stand together and worship our gracious Father. My hope is Thank you, Gordon. Thank you, John Scott. And thank each of you for being here this morning.
If you have the time and uh, would look around, there are a lot of opportunities for you to attend an adult Bible class. We would encourage you to do that, as John Scott mentioned earlier and, and Gordon emphasized. There are great ways to establish community there. So if you don't know the right one, ask any of us. The Welcome Center has a lot of information about that as well. And then again tonight, come back at 6 o'clock, where Gordon will be continuing uh, the series on Living Hope. And we would love to have you here. This morning, we are going to again read from Matthew 7, 12. If you'd read that with me as we're dismissed. Do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Go in peace. You're dismissed.